Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Oakland, California. Welcome to Sound Design Live. Today my guest is a volunteer mounted ranger for the Santa Monica National Park, Rick E. Norris. Rick, thanks so much for being here. Yes, thank you very much, Nathan. I enjoy being here. It's great. <laughs> okay, so Rick is also a certified public accountant who does a lot of work in the entertainment industry in Los Angeles, as well as a musician. Um, so I definitely want to talk to you, Rick, about bookkeeping, financial planning, and strategies to grow a business. But first of all, do the Santa Monica National Park Mounted Rangers have a theme song? And if not, what do you think would be a good one to suggest? Well, we're the, we're the Mounted Volunteer Patrol, uh, and we, we assist with the eyes and ears of the um, rangers. And I would think if we were to have a uh, theme song, since we're on horseback, I think it would be the theme song from the Mr. Ed TV program. A horse is a horse, of course, of course, and no one can talk to a horse, of course. That is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Ed. Go right to the source and ask uh, since we rely so much on our horses and they're and they may not be able to talk but they are uh, basically uh, trained we have to train uh, three times a year and we get tested uh, every year and the horses have to be able to withstand uh, loud noises bicycles running into you know running into them skidding in front of them wow. uh, all these different things and uh, they call them bomb proof so you know they're pretty sharp they're pretty smart my guess is that you have a pretty close kind of a personal relationship with this horse because you, I guess you use the same one all the time because you have to pass the test with that horse and you get to know it pretty well. Well, it's our horses. We okay, have you to come the there horse. with your horses. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My horse, my wife's horse loves her. My horse, when he sees me coming, he, he just kind of throws a cigar on the ground, stamps it out and says, damn, he's here again. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, but he's a, he's a workhorse. He just, uh, he, he, he's very well trained uh, and uh, he, you know, he really knows what to do. And we, we do a lot of stuff together and we've had, you know, rescues and different things like that. So it's been a lot of fun. Very cool. All right, Rick. So can I be honest with you for a second? Uh-huh. Okay, so I think this is going to be one of the hardest interviews I've ever done um, because the, the topic is so foreign to me. You know, I'm, even when I've talked to people about nutrition, I feel like I know a few things about nutrition. And especially when I talk to people about music or sound design, I feel like I know a few things about that or I, I can at least talk about it. But the financial advice that my mother gave me was to be a doctor. So my strategy for many years was just to ignore money and assume that everything was going to work out because I'm a good person. I've learned a lot more over the past few years. Um, I read Stephen Fishman's book, for example, and interviewed him last year for the podcast. But in a lot of ways, I feel like I'm still in the dark. I feel like I'm being responsible with my business, but I'm not 100% sure and I fear being audited. And I know that a lot of people in my audience feel the same way because when I talk to them about their financial goals, um, they tell me that they don't have any and they don't know if they're in line with the law. So they don't have a plan and they do fear being audited and losing money. 
And they say things to me like, shouldn't I be incorporating my business or setting up a different bank account, hiring a bookkeeper? So there's all these ideas that they're not sure how to prioritize. And to me, that that seems like they're sort of putting the cart before the horse when they're just starting out as a freelance audio professional. But on the other side, I've seen what happens when you don't plan for growth and um, bad business practices become habits and ignorance and fear end up holding you back later on when you want to grow. So I feel like there's a lot of questions, obviously, that I have that I could ask you. um, But to sort of get in the right space and maybe the best way for us to move forward would be for you to treat me like a client coming in for the first time. Maybe you could run me through some of the most common questions that you ask Mm -hmm. and, and the steps that I would need to take to put my financial house in order, um, but also plan for growth. Um, does that Mm -hmm. sound okay? Yeah, sounds great. Okay. I'm a solo entrepreneur selling my services and occasionally renting some of my equipment. I don't have any employees, but I, um, often hire skilled contractors, uh, mm-hmm. including other sound engineers sometimes when I'm producing an event or um, what else do you need to know about me to get started? Mm-hmm. Well, Nathan, you know, thanks for coming in to speak with us. You know, we get uh, questions like this all the time. I get phone calls weekly, uh, new clients uh, that we meet. Uh, we, we take on a lot of new businesses. Uh, one of the things of why we get new businesses is because new business people don't know what direction they're going. They're kind of like they have this whole thing that, uh, that this concept and this dream and this passion, and they don't have the nuts and bolts to put that dream and passion to work. So the first thing I always say is I ask them, I said, what is your strategy? You know, do you have a strategic plan? And some of them will say, well, I have a business plan. And what I, and I say is that there is a difference between a business plan and a strategic plan. A business plan is like if you're going to build a car, and you have a garage, and, and basically you put on paper all the parts that you're going to buy and who's going to do it, the labor and all the materials and the gasoline and who the driver is going to be. So the business plan is basically the numbers part of how you're going to afford and finance putting this thing together. So you, you put your car together, and it's working. It's great. And so that's like your business. So you, you drive out of the garage. You get into the street. And you turn to your partner to say next to you in a car, and you're saying, where are we going? And that's what a strategic plan is. The strategic plan is really the roadmap. Uh, you know, because basically what people do in, in businesses, most of them, I mean, almost the overwhelming majority, uh, no matter how big, you know, from medium size to small businesses, is that they have something like a business plan in their head. And as long as they don't go off the black or go out of the black, you know, into the ditch, uh, off the um, uh, the asphalt, they're doing fine, but they really don't have a direction of where they're going. So the thing that I always recommend that people should look into is doing a strategic plan, which is a roadmap of where you're going to be 10 to 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of companies don't do that. So once you get that down, then you can put the nuts and bolts together as far as the, the business plan about how to get there and benchmarks about how to get there. But one of the things that you brought up is uh, very important. You said, well, I don't know. Should I incorporate? Should I, you know, what else things that should I do? I'm kind of lost. The main thing is that know what your core competency is. Is your core competency, you know, being an online, you know, uh, audio person uh, interviewing people? Uh, and if that's your core competency, then 
you know, you should not be an expert in bookkeeping. You should not be an expert in law. You should not be an expert in insurance. So what you should do as a small business person or a medium business person starting out is that you should build a team of people. And those people could be attorneys, they could be uh, uh, an accountant, a CPA, uh, a financial planner, if you have money that's be invested, uh, insurance people, uh, and so a, a pension expert, pension plans, you have that. So all the, this team, and you can get referrals from each member of the team. So let's say you have a CPA, like this is what we do a lot, is that we basically, and many of our clients, is we're their back office accounting department. Uh, they don't have a controller, and we handle the bookkeeping and paying bills and accounts receivable and things like that. And they'll say, well, you know what? I need workers' comp. And I say, well, I have somebody that I've worked in insur- with insurance for the last 10, 15 years, and I trust her, and she can help you with that. Or health insurance right now. Health insurance is a really big thing with these small businesses having to get health insurance. And so you start building this team, interviewing these people, and if you, your chemistry is good, that's what you're looking for. Uh, because you have to rely on members of the team of whether these people are competent or not, because you don't know if an insurance person's good or an attorney's good, but you can rely on somebody on your team who has worked with them for the last 10, 15, 20 years. And so that's how you grow, and that's how you become better at what you do, because you have a team of people that are looking out for your back. I like that you phrase it that way, about having team members, because it's logical to people like me and most audio entrepreneurs and audio professionals, sound designers and such that, that when we need to run an event, we know that we're going to need more people to help us. We're going to need people to load in the equipment. We're going to need lighting designers. We're going to need um, stagehands, all these different jobs to get the job done. But when it comes to working on our own businesses and not in the business, but when it comes to actually working on the business, I feel like most people, first of all, don't really know what's necessary, and second of all, feel like they should just be able to do it all themselves and want to do it all themselves and have control over it. But it's funny because it's it's really similar. I guess in a way, if you're running your own business, you should have people that are on your team helping you out, just like when you are working in your business and working on a live event or in a studio working on a production. Exactly. And the people that you're working on a production, you trust those people. Hopefully, you have a history with each one of them. Uh, if you don't, you're going to get referrals from people that you do have a history that you you trust. You know, that's like in building anything. And uh, and that's but again, that gets down to the business plan part. You know, the nuts and bolts part. But what I want to make sure that my my business uh, clients know. And even individual clients, you know, we've been actually leveraging this to individual artists too, like singers, uh, strategic planning, which has been a lot of fun. Um, and, and that is, is that where are you going? You know, I mean, you're, you're looking at it from your point of view, you're looking at one production at a time. And that's fine, and you should do that. But as you keep one eye on a step in front of you, you also got to keep the other eye on the horizon. And most business people, overwhelming majority of business people I know, do not do that or even know how to do that. Let's talk about some of the specific elements that go into that kind of plan. What are some of the big blocks that some of the big building blocks that you help people put into place to have this kind of strategy? Well, one of the things that I'm doing is that uh, I'm working on a, uh, a book right now 
which uh, puts together accounting and strategic planning. And I've talked to people in my uh, strategic planning organization, the Association for Strategic Planning, which is a national organization. I was the uh, president of the local chapter in, in uh, Los Angeles there. Um, and I asked some of these guys and ladies about, um, has anybody done this? And so far, in their opinion uh, and recollection, nobody's ever done this. So how we work is that we walk into a business, usually they're already existing, and we kind of do like an accounting review. We make sure all their books are correct, uh, their accounting books are correct, and we run metrics like um, gross profit ratio and, and uh, current asset ratio, all these different things, which is just like a doctor taking your temperature. So these ratios, from an accounting point of view, really are not the end all. What they are is they are uh, something that are symptoms of much bigger problems. So once we get that done, then we move into the strategic planning part. And sometimes these symptoms are usually these symptoms that we see are issues that come out and uh, in, in our starting points for the strategic planning uh, process. And so, you know, we will we'll list about six, eight issues. And we're not necessarily going to address all of them, but we may, we'll end up narrowing them down to maybe three. But we'll start with big issues, and then we'll go through assumptions about the business, like, uh, you know, your assumption as a, as a, uh, a, a talk show person or, uh, is something like, all right, I have this equipment, I'm in the Bay Area, I have a reach to this number of people, I have uh, things like that. Of, of what, you know, this kind of area that you'd like to hit, uh, the kind of assumptions that we, we basically hit. Uh, and then we get into your values. What kind of values do you have in this thing? I mean, you, you don't want to interview people from the mafia or, you know, or, uh, you know maybe uh, you, you don't want to have people on the air that do nothing but just do selling, sells their, sell their business and don't give any advice. Uh, that might be a value. And then, so when we come down to this, we, we sit down, we say, okay, Nathan, what is your vision? Where do you see yourself 10 years from now? Where do you see yourself 20 years from now? And then we work with you on that, on what your vision would be. And so, uh, and we kind of narrow that down and then we kind of refine that. Then we start going through different things about, you know, what do you, these, this is a common thing you do in strategic planning. Like what kind of strengths do you have, internal strengths? Uh, what kind of internal weaknesses do you have that you have to compensate for? And then you look at the external part, and that is like, you know, what is the opportunities uh, that, are, that are coming your way, and what kind of threats are there that may be in your, your domain? You know, what kind of things can happen in threats? And as we go through that, we, we start building up, you know, uh, a whole different action, like a matrix of actions, matrix of actions about this is what you have to do over the next 10 years, and we're going to break it down by quarter or by six months. Who's responsible for this on your team and how we're going to measure it? Because if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And then we basically work our way through. And then as the accounting department, if, we, if that was our job, if we we're your accounting department, we help you measure this uh, as you go on in the future. And we see if you're in line with your strategy. You can find relevant links and more information about today's interview by using the search box on sounddesignlive.com. While you're there, pick up the Sound Design Live ebook with the best material from my first two years of interviews with audio industry leaders.
I, if I, even if I had like the smallest idea of where my business was going, you could help me put the numbers in line to get there or to make it make more sense. For example, I feel like I already have um, a vision for my business, but I don't necessarily have numbers that are congruent with that that say things like, this is how much I want to be making a year from now. Um, and I also feel like maybe you could look at the transactions from the past that I've done in my business and see maybe where there are trends that I haven't noticed. Because I can look at my balance sheet and see all my transactions and I can see if I'm in the black or I can see if I'm in the red, but you have a lot more experience analyzing these things and can probably tell me where my weaknesses are and um, where I can grow. Right, Nathan. And I'm, I'm very impressed that you even know what a balance sheet is. I mean, uh, <laughs> so, so many people I run into, they're very good at their craft. They're excellent at what they're doing, like uh, you know, an artist, for example, or a producer, or a contractor uh, you know, builds houses or a plumbing contractor. They're very good at what they do. And they're craftsmen or craftswomen, but they don't understand financials, and that's part of our job. I wanted to go back to the vision part that you said because uh, there's something that I wrote an article on that's on my uh, site, uh, the LACPA.com, that basically talks about Walt Disney. And I found this actually in a Harvard uh, business review, uh, business review article. And uh, basically, Walt Disney, what he did, is that he had this vision, and in 1957, he put it down on paper. And it's pretty amazing. It's, it's almost like he just almost penciled it out. Um, and what the vision is, and I have a picture of this on my website, uh, on my article that I wrote, is basically he took his core competency, and that's the first thing I told you about, what is your core competency? And the core competency of Walt Disney was uh, creative talent of studio theatrical films. So in 1957, he already had a big slate of Pinocchio uh, and uh, Snow White and Sleeping Beauty, things like that. And, uh, and he was, that was basically his main drive. And so in the article, I called that as the heart. You know, that was basically pumping the blood. And then he had other things that the Harvard Review article called as assets, but I call as profit centers. And there were little things around that complemented this heart. And there were things like merchandise licensing, uh, theme park, Disneyland. Remember, Disneyland wasn't open until I think it was 1957 or 58, uh, somewhere around there. Uh, comic strips, Walt Disney magazines, publications, music, TV commercials. And before your time, uh, Nathan, I don't know if, if it was around when you were around, but there was actually a Walt Disney show, the Mickey Mouse Club. Uh, back in the 60s that I used to watch. And so that was also another one of these organs. And so he had this heart, this core competency of film, and then he had all these different organs around that complemented it. And the circulation that he had, the blood traveling between them, uh, there were arrows going back and forth, how they complement each other, were basically his characters. His characters were the circulatory system for, for this whole system. And... What's amazing is that he built this amazing uh, empire based on this vision. After he died in the, in the 70s, the board lost the vision. The executive team lost this vision. You know, they started going into different kinds of films with touchstone pictures, you know, non-animated stuff and things like that. 
And they started losing market share to the point where their core competency, they didn't stick to it, and it fell apart. And they started losing lots of market share. And they were to the point where basically they had two options, either find a CEO who could get them back online or basically sell the assets uh, of the company, like the theme park and different things like that, in order to keep it going. That was their options. They brought in Michael Eisner. Michael Eisner came in and understood the Walt Disney vision. He brought it back. And right after that, he was responsible for Beauty and the Beast, The Little Mermaid, you know, uh, things like that that just took off. Uh, three big films immediately. Within years, they had gone from 6% to like an 80% market share. It's really amazing that you know when you stick to the core competency of what you do, you know, and you work with the team that we talked about, and you work with all these, you know, these different profit centers, you can drive forward. But once you start going outside that core competency, you run the risk of losing your vision, and then the whole thing just falls apart. Rick, I want to step back for a minute because. I want people to be able to really walk away from this conversation with a clearer idea of how some of these things work. So I want to step down from this higher level conversation for a second and just kind of define the difference between a bookkeeper, a financial planner, and a CPA because I especially just, I want people to know the parts of their business that maybe they're not keeping up with, that they're not even doing yet, and how these jobs and how these people could be helping them. These have changed a lot over the last uh, 35 years that I've been doing this. I started in 1979. And when I, in 1979, even though I was on my way to being a CPA, taking a CPA exam, getting my audit experience, a lot of the work I was doing in a smaller CPA firm was what bookkeepers, our bookkeepers, do today. Uh, things like bank reconciliations and sales tax and payroll taxes and uh, and bookkeepers write checks um, and record deposits. Um, the bookkeepers that we have today, because of technology has gone so far, like QuickBooks uh, or some other accounting softwares, um, uh, makes these things automatic. And so they're able to use these technologies to their benefits to do the work that I did in 1979. So a bookkeeper, you know, the most basic thing a bookkeeper does is basically write checks and does bank reconciliations. That's basically it. What is bank reconciliations? So if you have, let's say you have a, a bank account. Let's say you put $1,000 in the bank account. And so you, uh, and then that day uh, you wrote a $900 check uh, to me, your accountant, because I'm worth it. Uh, and so you look at the bank, and I have the check in my hand. I haven't gone to the bank to deposit it yet. You look at your bank statement online, and it says, Nathan, you have $1,000 in your bank account. And you said, oh, that's fantastic, forgetting that you wrote a $900 check. Uh So then you write $500 uh, to people who are involved in your production. A reconciliation hasn't been done between what is at the bank and what is really happening in your accounting books. Because in your accounting books, you only had $100 in there, but the bank showed $1,000. And so that's how you reconcile it every month that you have to know what checks are outstanding that your accountant is holding in his hand. He has to put it in his, in his own bank. Uh, and you also have to know what deposits 
that haven't hit the bank that you put in there. For example, if you put in a deposit, somebody does like PayPal. Somebody pays you something on PayPal, but it's not going to hit your bank for another couple of days. You want to know that that's coming in. Mm -hmm. So you're going to put that in there on your accounting books. Now, this is not only uh, important for when you write checks, but I just got through uh, sending an email out to a uh, client that we only just do tax returns on. Uh, and I said, you know, we would, you, maybe you might want us to get more involved in your back office stuff because they had not done a bank reconciliation in three months. Their bookkeeper hasn't. And I said, well, maybe you want us to do this. Wow. And I said, here's another reason why you want to do that. Somebody could be going into your bank account and stealing money. And I've had this happen with clients uh, and even myself. Uh, I've had, uh, I have on my bank, since it's something that your listeners should do, go to your banker and say, anytime somebody comes to the counter to cash a check, that you call my cell phone. And you say, Nathan Lively, Lively is here to cash a $100 check. Is that okay? Because what happens is that Somehow, and many times it's an inside job, somebody gets your bank account numbers, they go and they create bogus checks, they'll write a check out, forge your signature, and they will go to the bank, a bank where you're not located that doesn't have your signature card, and try to cash your check. That's scary. Right. And I've had that happen. I've had that, you know, we have our bank account, uh, our personal bank account in Manhattan Beach, uh, California. And I had somebody who was somewhere around Mid-Wilshire, Fairfax, and the bank called me up because I had those instructions. And they said, we have this guy, and they gave his name, and they had his fake ID who's trying to cash this $1,100 check. And I said, "Uh, you know what? I didn't write that check. By the time they put down the phone, the guy was running out of the bank. Wow. I didn't even know you could ask for that in a bank. That's a really good tip. And the and the, uh, the other thing of why uh, for internal internal controls is that let's say you know Nathan that you have you know I don't want to accuse anybody but let's just say you hire a bookkeeper and let's say that bookkeeper is working for you for years and you trust him or her and then you unbeknownst to you let's say the bookkeeper's uh, spouse has significant medical issues they're running out of money and they get tempted to steal money. What happens is, and we've seen this, we've actually come on new clients that this happened to the bookkeeper that left, that just quit. The bookkeeper had actually took three checks from the back of the check stock, wrote checks to herself and cashed them. And because the client had left the bookkeeper with uh, the responsibility of writing checks and doing the bank bank reconciliations, the client never saw it. When our bookkeeper came in there, she said, here's three checks that are 500 numbers out of order. You know, what like like you you went from 150 to, to number 550 and 551 and 552. And she brought that to the attention of the client and found out that this bookkeeper had taken money. And so you never have bookkeepers in charge of writing checks and do the bank reconciliations because this is a check and balance. Sound Design Live produces free audio podcast interviews with industry experts, product reviews of pro audio books, hardware, and software, and tutorials and articles on sound engineering, 
sound design, and sound system design and optimization. Subscribe today at sounddesignlive.com or by searching for Sound Design Live in iTunes or SoundCloud. So these are things that small businesses fall in. Uh, I had a, a neighbor uh, who had a, a bakery type thing and uh, she came to me and she said, you know, my bookkeeper, 15 years, you know, she's so hard, she works so hard. You know, she comes in there at 7 a.m. before I am, she stays after I'm gone. You know, and I, and I this happened to Kathleen, I said, yeah, she do your bank really, she, you know, she writes your checks and do your bank rent? She said, yes. And, um, and so, um, uh, she said, but you know, she just quit and boy, my accounts receivable is so screwed up. There's clients that said they paid and there are clients that say they, they, you know, they already paid and I can't figure it out. And I said, you know what? I said, this is a textbook case for fraud that basically she was collecting accounts receivables for one client, putting in money in her pocket. She would collect it for the second client and then credit it to the client, the first client. And she's been doing this for years and years and years. And and she and you know this neighbor of mine said no 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 she's like family, well that's exactly what happened it was like I don't know uh, over a hundred thousand dollars wow and uh, so you know those are the things that that if you set up the controls properly uh, you have a better chance of them not happening so I feel like if I'm responsible and I record all of my transactions all the money that I'm spending all the money that I'm receiving then I shouldn't need a bookkeeper. But I know that you're telling me that a bookkeeper does some other things beyond that, for example, um, possibly protecting me from theft or fraud. Um, is there anything else outside of that that I'm missing? Yeah. Um, the thing is, is that and I, I wrote an article on this years ago. Actually, I've gotten clients off this article. Is basically, when do you need a business manager? And that was really directed towards entertainment industry people. But I would, I would change it a little bit to you. Is that when do I need a bookkeeper? I'm writing my own checks. I'm doing my own deposits. What do I need a bookkeeper for? And my question to you is, is that's fine. You know, if you're a small enough business where that's what you have to do, that's fine. But you have to step back and look. This goes back to like the Walt Disney thing. What is your core competency? Are you a bookkeeper? And the answer is no. There are other things that you can be doing on uh, promoting your business, uh, doing more interviews, uh, doing uh, working with your PR person, doing social networking, uh, search engine optimization, all these different things that you could be have your hands in working on to grow your business. No, you can't because you're too busy writing checks and trying to do reconcile your bank account. And that's going to keep you from growing. Yeah, it sounds like we're talking about productivity and growth here because it's not just maybe the hour that I save a week by not working as much on my bookkeeping, but it's then maybe the many more hours that I'll save a year from now because I don't have to deal with problems later on. That's one thing. And the second thing is that, you know, the whatever it is, the $40, $50, $60, $70 an hour you may pay to a bookkeeper, uh, may that time may have made you thousands in extra extra business and growing your business. Uh, and you know there was uh, the article I wrote was um, uh, it's remembered. My uncle uh, knew a guy who was probably he was an electrician, and he was probably one of the best auto mechanics he ever met. But this guy did not work on his own car because if he spent Saturdays working on his own car, he would miss out on the eighty or ninety dollars an hour where he was doing uh, electrical work. Uh-huh. That you have to weigh that all the time when you when you run your own business. Oh. 
when do I need financial assistance? How do I decide what kind? And how do I find the best fit for me? I mean, you talked about bookkeepers that are possibly ones that you couldn't trust. Um, I'm sure there are people who specialize in financial assistance for the entertainment industry like you. These three questions of when do I need it? Um, what kind? And how do I find the best fit for me? Yeah, uh, some of the stuff, I mean, that's what a CPA is good for, especially in, in what we do, uh, is that we kind of act as a band leader uh, conducting an orchestra. So basically, you know, I could, you know, we tell clients, look, we can do very little for you, just a tax return, or we can do bookkeeping. Uh, and so, you know, start off small, start off small and start growing. And as you need these additional people, Talk to the people on your team, uh, like the CPA, uh, that or the attorney, and saying, you know what, I, I I need insurance. Can you recommend an insurance person? So, basically, just start small and grow. And these needs will come out of the woodwork. Uh, they really work because you'll you'll see that, you know, your CPA should tell you, you know what, you need um, you need to get insurance, general liability insurance. Um, you know, I don't know. You know, for example, here's a question I would have for you. I have no idea. Uh, what kind of liability insurance uh, that you should have, Nathan? But let's say you know. Let, let's just you know think uh, hypothetically. Let's say you're doing an interview and one of your guests um, defames somebody, you know, slander. Well, is there a liability for you? I don't know, but an insurance person may. You know, I would raise the question. Uh, an attorney may raise the question. But an insurance person would say, you know what, I know of a specific insurance package that's just for your kind of business, and yes, they cover that. appropriate for me as a new business owner or wanting to grow my business just to call up a CPA and say, just to have an initial consultation where I just say, hey, I want to know what the first steps are. I have a lot of confusion around my business situation and possibly I'm not making enough profit yet to even hire a CPA on regularly, but I still want to build a relationship with someone and find out when I'm ready, what the first steps are. I mean, are these, is that an appropriate baby step for someone to take? Well, yes. I mean, it doesn't cost you a lot for one hour consultation or two hours. And, you know, the person can point you in the right direction and you can do all the work yourself. Okay. So, uh, you know, always take that. I mean, when I started off in business, very similar. You know, this was 20 years ago, a very, very similar uh, situation. And I eventually just built up teams of people. But you know, I started off doing a lot of stuff by myself. And that's why I write articles uh, usually twice a week. I've got over, I don't know, 270 articles on our website that talk about business and tax issues uh, just like this, just to give people free advice. Terry says, what percentage of your income do medical bills need to be before you can claim them as a write-off? And I wrote to her, why do you think there's a limit? And I deduct all of my medical expenses. So that was my feeling about it, but am I totally wrong? Really, if to, or able to have medical deductions on your personal return, uh, you have to itemize your deductions. Itemizing is like non-business deductions your mortgage interests, your charitable contributions, 
your medical expenses, things like that. And but there's so you have to be able to to get that threshold where you can itemize. You don't have a choice to itemize uh, if you don't have enough. So they give you a standard deduction, and it changes depending on whether you're single or married. Uh, and and so you may not be able to use the medical or anything itemized if you don't meet that first threshold of being able to itemize. The second threshold is that in medical expenses, you need to have more than 7.5% of your adjusted gross income in medical expenses just to deduct $1. Let's say you earn $100,000, all right? So, and let's say you can itemize. So you have $100,000 of income. 7.5% of that is $7,500. Let's say you have $8,000 of medical expenses. Well, what's going to end up being on your return is only you'll put down the $8,000, but after subtracting out the $7,500, all you're going to allow to deduct is $500. So see, there, uh, Barry understands that we are limited. And the way it goes is the more money you make, the less you, less you can deduct. And where I've usually seen medical deductions deducted on a personal return are, uh, one, when people don't make a lot of money, or two, they have really catastrophic medical expenses they couldn't pay. Now, that's just regular medical expenses like doctors and things like that. Another kind of medical expense is your insurance premiums. If, if you are not self-employed, it falls into that bucket that I just told you about. But if you're self-employed then uh, and you are a sole proprietor, then you can deduct the medical insurance uh, on your tax return. So you have to kind of separate it out. So Barry's right on one situation where you're limited here uh, as far as medical expenses for doctors and things like that. But if you're self-employed, there's a little added benefit. They allow you to deduct the medical, medical health insurance premiums. And maybe that's what you're talking about. Just recommend that your, your listeners talk to their uh, accountants, uh, CPAs about this, about which way to go and how these things are deducted. Tim says, how do I use independent contractors without coming afoul of labor laws? He's in California, like us. And I told him that you need to make it clear that they are independent contractors in the eyes of the IRS. And there are various ways to do that. But having a contract that identifies them as such is a good place to start. Um, so I know there are a lot of different things you can say about that. But do you think what I said is correct so far? Uh, yeah, it is. And, um, you know, it, this is a very complicated um, uh, topic because what determines who is an employee changes state by state because it's based on state law, uh, who is an employee, but then you have the overriding tax code. And the IRS is really uh, coming down on businesses, small businesses, uh, for putting somebody as independent contractors. I think the uh, you know without you know knowing anybody's business, I would I would think your listeners should just think of it in a certain way. Uh, let's say a CPA, for example. If if I was working for you, Nathan, I would be an independent contractor because I have my own CPA practice. You're telling me what to do, like bookkeeping, accounting, and a tax return, but you don't have the expertise to tell me how to do it. And you're not basically managing me or supervising me. 
and so, and I'm invoicing you, and I'm a separate company that has other other clients. So, you're telling me what to do, but not how to do it. But if you have, uh, like, let's say, a production staff uh, on there, and you're running a production because you're really the line producer or the executive producer, you know, that's running more and more, looking like an employee, and. It gets very, very expensive if you get caught. So I really caution your listeners to get some really detailed guidance on this and not to take chances. Okay, so the last question from Tim, how do I reduce my audit risk if I take a business loss? You know, uh, Tim, there is a um, little presumption thing that the IRS has that you have to show a profit. I think it's two of every five years. <clears throat> but the IRS is not going to like it if you have a $50 profit in two years and a $500,000 loss in the other years. Basically, that's just a presumption. You know, That doesn't necessarily mean they will disallow your losses. Basically, what we always tell people is that try to make it not look like a hobby. Uh, you know, go through the whole thing. Get a get your business license. Uh, open up separate bank accounts. Put in all the hours that a normal business person in your predicament would do. That you know, make sure that you're covering all the bases of looking like somebody who is really trying to make a profit at something. Because where they start looking at it as a, lo- a hobby, you know, you've had losses in the last five or six years. And a normal business person would not do this because you're working another job or uh, you're just kind of writing off your house or, or writing off your car or, and things like that. And so it, it will, uh, you know, you'll have to be able to meet that test in order to uh, being able to duck those losses. So the more you run it like a business, the better. Uh, you could always you know, use as an example, I mean, look at these software companies. Remember the, you know, all the dot-com companies and things like that? I mean, huge losses year after year after year, and then they got, you know, get bought for a billion dollars. I mean, who would know that that was how, what they were looking for? But you kind of can look at it the same way from a sole proprietorship. You may have to, in your industry, uh, shoulder some losses in the first several years because that's the way the industry works. But the best thing you can do is just try to make it look as much as a business you can, invoicing and doing everything you can, getting insurance, and prove to the IRS that this is really a business and not just a hobby. Let me ask you a follow-up question for Tim, because I know that he's been slowly building his business part-time over mm-hmm. the last three years because he does have a full-time job and then just on the weekends and like after work, he sort of works on uh, building his business. So from the things you just said, it looks precarious for him. Well, that's the IRS's position. You know, they would step in, they may step in and they may say, Tim, this is a hobby. And, but what I would like to see Tim do is a, get a you know line hate to use cliches but basically line you know get all your ducks ducks in a row, basically make it look like a business. Get you know working with all the things that he's doing and all the time he spends on on raising this on raising this into a business because he's not the first person that is going to have losses in a sole proprietorship that ultimately turned out to be a successful business. So just put everything in line to build that. And you can you, know, you can check some articles that are written uh, about this that may help based on case law or you know, your CPA can help you with that. Mm-hmm. But just like a checklist. Okay. Uh, R-I-C-K-N-O-R-R-I-S-C-P-A.com. 
Or if you want to go straight to the articles and just get some information, it's thelacpa.com. And is there anywhere else where you would recommend for people to follow you on Twitter or Facebook? Or are there some other sites that you're posting articles, anything like that? Uh, yes, we're on uh, all those. You know, just type in our name. <laughs> okay. You know, we we have a very broad presence on the internet, uh, and uh, you know, our handle name is Rick E Norris uh, at Twitter, and, uh, and it's Rick Norris at uh, uh, Facebook too. But the um, in the articles, uh, you know, they get posted out on these things as I write them. And uh, hopefully they'll be useful to people. When this podcast comes out, if you go to the show notes for it, I'll post all of the links up to the articles that Rick has mentioned. And I hope that if you have any questions or if there's anything that we haven't explained well, I hope that you would post a question there in the comments for this article. And uh, I'll get to those and I'll try to send those to Rick um, if there's anything specifically for him. Well, thank you, Nathan. All right, Rick. Well, thanks for being on Sound Design Live. Thank you for having me. Sound design. Hey, 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 this is Nathan. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed this episode of Sound Design Live, rate it on iTunes or send it to a friend. All right, Rick. Okay, last question. Sorry, one more thing. Have yeah. you seen the Saturday Night Live skit with Amy Poehler called Caitlin at the Mall? No, no, I have not. I'll have to look it up. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Every time I hear your name, I think of that because she says Rick about 5,000 times. During oh, really? Skit.